Welcome to The Commentaries, a podcast series from TAN in which you'll learn how to read and understand history's greatest Catholic works from today's greatest Catholic scholars. In every series of The Commentaries, your expert host will be your personal guide to not just read the book, but to live the book, shining the light of its eternal truths into our modern darkness. Visit TANCommentaries.com to get your copy of the book and to subscribe for access to all the great reading plans, new episodes, bonus content, and exclusive deals for listeners of the commentaries. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the commentary series on the Confessions of St. Augustine. I'm Dr. Paul Thigpen, an author and retired professor of historical theology. This is the eighth episode of our series, and we're using the Tan edition of the book. Today we explore Book 6, Chapters 1-16, through 16, St. Augustine's thoughts and recollections about several figures who were major influences in his spiritual journey. Let's begin with words from his prayer. Lord, let the heart be wakeful in the love of your mercy, and in the sweetness of your grace wherein every feeble person is made mighty, when by that grace he comes to know how feeble he is. Amen. As the book opens, we encounter again St. Monica, without a doubt the most influential person in Augustine's life, a towering figure in the Confessions, whose remarkable faith remains relentlessly firm and persevering. The once wandering son recalls, By now, my mother, brave in her piety, had come following me over land and sea, sure of your help in all perils. For when the voyage was at a critical point, she comforted the sailors themselves, who usually are the ones to comfort fearful passengers inexperienced with the deep. She promised them that they would arrive safely where they were going, because that is what you, Lord, had promised her in a vision. And she found me in dire straits, in despair of finding the path of truth. Augustine remembers, when I admitted to her that I was no longer an Anachaean, while not yet a Catholic Christian, she did not leap for joy as someone might do when he hears good news he never expected. And why not? Simple. She wasn't at all surprised. It was all just part of God's plan to answer her prayers for his conversion. She was quite certain that you, Lord, who had promised the whole, would give the rest. Augustine observes, Calm and with a heart full of confidence, she replied to me that she trusted in Christ, who had assured her that before she was to pass from this life, she would see me a faithful Catholic. Of course, what she didn't tell her wayward son was that as a result of that conversation, she went to God even more often to pray weeping and begging him to hurry up, and she went more often to St. Ambrose to be strengthened. Such faith, such fortitude, what a rock. Lord, make us like Monica as we intercede for our children and for others. Next, we catch a fascinating glimpse of what was apparently at that time a custom among North African Christians. They would gather with bread, wine, and other food at a local cemetery then eat and drink at each tomb of the Christian martyrs buried there as a way to venerate them. That sounds like a pious thing to do, much like laying wreaths on the graves of the beloved dead. But the custom had apparently degenerated 
into an occasion for drunkenness, and it closely resembles certain pagan customs of the area. Not surprisingly then, St. Ambrose had forbidden the practice in his diocese, and St. Monica found out about the ban when she went to practice in Milan the custom she had brought from Africa. Why does Augustine mention this detail? Because he was amazed at how readily and willingly his mother had obeyed the bishop's rule, even though it had been a cherished custom for her. Instead, she prayed at the martyrs' tombs and distributed food to the needy instead. It was a sign, Augustine said, of her deep love and high respect for St. Ambrose. For she loved him dearly for the sake of my salvation, her son recalls, and he loved her indeed for her deeply religious ways. For she went to the church again and again, so fervent in the spirit and full of good works. That observation serves as a segue for Augustine to tell us more about his great mentor, the Bishop Ambrose. I considered Ambrose a man most fortunate as the world goes, honored by so many persons of authority, Augustine observes. But one thing puzzled him about the older man, his celibacy. Given the young man's moral failures with regard to sexual temptation, we shouldn't be surprised that he wondered how Ambrose could remain celibate. As Augustine himself notes, at that point he was clueless about what sources of moral strength to resist temptation had served to buttress the old man's holiness. He wanted to ask about all that, but the bishop was constantly surrounded by people seeking his assistance. Augustine felt shut out and frustrated. One way Ambrose could refresh himself was the study of scripture. In this regard as well, Augustine found him perplexing, for the older man read the words of the book silently. You see, what we take for granted today was apparently rare in those days when most people only read aloud. This was the first time Augustine had ever seen someone read without speaking the words, as Ambrose did. The younger man could only speculate about why someone would do such a thing. Even though Augustine at this point had little access to Ambrose privately, still he returned to Sunday Mass week after week to hear him preach. The bishop's remarkable wisdom, especially with regard to interpreting scripture, transformed his understanding of what the Catholic Church professed and taught. He discovered that most of what the Manichees had told him about the Catholic faith was simply wrong, and he found the truth about the Catholic faith extremely attractive. Many converts to the Catholic Church have had a similar experience. Even so, the young man hesitated to embrace the faith. I still do not know whether what Ambrose said was true. I held my heart back from any assent, as I was afraid to pitch myself into something too rashly, and that very hanging in suspense was the more deadly to me for I wanted to be as sure of the things I could not see as I was that seven and three make ten. Nevertheless, Augustine goes on to add, from then on, I began to prefer the Catholic teaching. The saint then goes on with a wise commentary about the matter of whether we can believe something to be true on the basis of a reliable authority. Then as now, many claim that we can only trust what we know from reason and personal experience. This would mean that we aren't justified in accepting what the scripture teaches by divine authority in the church. To do so 
would be naive and dangerous. Augustine demonstrates that such a claim is itself naive because so much of what we believe to be true in daily life has been accepted not through reason or personal experience, but precisely on the basis of what we have been told by someone we believe to be trustworthy. I considered, he recalls, how innumerable were the things I believed, though I had not seen them, nor was I present when they happened. So many things in the history of nations, so many things about places and cities I had never seen, so many things about my friends, about physicians, about countless other people, things which, if we did not believe, we could get nothing done in this life at all. Then I thought about what I held with an unshakable faith, that I was born of such parents, which I could not know, but had to take on faith from what I heard. Reason and personal experience can never suffice to tell us all we need to know. And so, Augustine concludes, because we were too frail to find the truth by pure reason alone, we needed the authority of the sacred scriptures. We have next a fine example of the way that Augustine could draw deep insight out of seemingly random and inconsequential events in his life. He tells how he and his friends came across a drunken beggar who was, as he puts it, glad and full of jests. Augustine immediately realizes that his own ambitious, dissipated lifestyle has failed to bring him gladness, while the beggar's simple life, focused on enjoying wine, has made him a cheerful, carefree man. On the journey to happiness, Augustine notes, this beggar had gotten there long ahead of us, and we might never get there at all. For what he had got hold of by a couple of little coins he begged for, I was seeking round and round by my ambition, back and forth with all kinds of trouble, namely the gladness of a good fortune that could not last. Not that the beggar's joy was a true joy, Augustine admits, but I, with all my helter-skelter ambition, sought a joy that was even more false. And that man certainly was cheerful, while I was gripped with cares. He was carefree, and I was full of fear. He was happier than I was, not only because he was drenched in good cheer, while my insides were torn up with cares, but more truly because he got his wine by wishing somebody good luck while I sought after a windy pride by telling lies. At this time, Augustine lived with several friends, among them Olypius and Nebridius. He says only a little about Nebridius, but a great deal about Olypius, to whom he became quite close. Once again, in his description of this companion, we can feel the saint's passionate enjoyment of friendship. Augustine says of Olypius, He loved me dearly, because I seemed to be a learned man and to be kindly disposed toward him. And I loved him in return for his great natural inclination to virtue, outstanding for one of so tender years. Olypius eventually went on to become a priest and then bishop. Despite his virtue, however, Olympius became caught up in what Augustine calls the madness of the circus or the racetrack in his love for horse racing he developed a gambling addiction. Always a faithful witness to God's remarkable providence, Augustine recalls how the Lord convicted Olypius of this vice. The young man visited one of Augustine's classroom lectures on a day when the teacher had chosen to make a point 
using a witty analogy from gambling with a biting jest at those who succumbed to the addiction. Augustine wasn't aiming the story at Olypius, but God himself had arranged to do just that. Olypius thought that Augustine was rebuking him personally, but instead of reacting in anger at his friend, he became angry with himself, repented, and loved Augustine all the more for correcting him. What a testimony to his character. The Lord had set Olypius up for this conversion. He never again returned to the racetrack. Augustine goes on to paint a vivid portrait of this dear friend, and he doesn't hesitate to report other vices. Olypius moved to Rome and soon was swept away by the gladiatorial combats, a new and ferocious addiction. Though Olypius had always detested the bloody games, his friends convinced him to join them there, trusting in his own strength to resist the temptation to bloodlust, which had the rest of them in bondage. He went to the arena but closed his eyes so that he wouldn't be drawn in. Trusting in his own strength to resist the temptation to bloodlust, which had the rest of them in bondage, he went to the arena but closed his eyes so that he wouldn't be drawn in. Yet Olypius made a big mistake. He neglected to cover his ears as well. So the first time one of the gladiators went down and the crowd roared, he opened his eyes to see what was happening. Augustine reports, as soon as he saw the blood, he drank savagery in with it, and he did not turn away, but fixed his gaze on it and poured the furies down his throat unawares and delighted in the wickedness of the contest and got drunk with bloodthirsty lust. Only some time later was Olypius able to break those chains. Augustine tells this story not to condemn his friend, but to teach several moral lessons. First, bloodlust corrodes and chains the soul. We should keep that in mind today whenever our entertainment media glorifies violence. Second, we must trust in God, not in our own strength, to resist temptation. Third, we must not presume on God's grace by placing ourselves in the near occasion of sin. Augustine goes on to tell one more episode from the life of his friend that would serve him well as a lesson in prudence. Olypius was falsely accused of a crime and arrested. Why did the Lord allow that misfortune? Augustine says to God, For no other reason did you permit it, as far as I can judge, than that he who was going to become an important man would begin to learn that people should not be condemned too easily. We should not be too rash to believe we know the facts of a case. Eventually, through an unusual turn of events, orchestrated, of course, by the Lord, Olypius was cleared of the charges. Augustine's clear and detailed description of the incident would make any modern crime reporter proud. These three men lived together and went round and round in their debates about life and truth and happiness. Sometimes they supported one another in virtue, and sometimes they caused one another to stumble. Now Monica re-enters the story. I was pressed with no let-up to get a wife. Soon I asked for a girl's hand in marriage, and we were betrothed, with my mother doing most of the arranging. Monica hoped to press her son out of a life of sexual sin and into the church. 
But what about the mother of his son? Apparently, her social status prevented him from marrying her. Meanwhile, my sins were multiplied, St. Augustine confesses, and the woman with whom I shared my bed was torn from my side as an obstacle to my marriage. My heart, which cleaved to her, was crushed and wounded, and it bled. And she went back to Africa, vowing to you that she would never know another man, and leaving me with our natural son. We must grieve with him and with his mistress, whose name Augustine never tells us, perhaps in an effort to protect her identity. Worse yet, because the girl to whom Augustine was betrothed was still too young to give consent. While he waited for her, he took yet another mistress. But he admits that such a ploy did nothing to heal the wound of separation. It only made the pain more desperate. In our next episode, we'll see how experiences such as these will press Augustine to wrestle with understanding the nature of God and the problem of evil. Let's conclude now with a prayer from the conclusion of Book 6. Behold, Lord, you are near, and you deliver us from our wretched wandering, and you set us firmly in your way. Amen, and God bless. This has been an episode of The Commentaries, a podcast brought to you by TAN. To follow the show, study more of the greatest Catholic classics, and to support the commentaries and other great free content from TAN, visit TANCommentaries.com to subscribe and use coupon code COM25 to get 25% off your next order, including the confessions and countless more spiritual works to deepen your interior life and guide you to heaven.